Okay. Well, uh, if you've been here the last few weeks, you know we are taking on a series of lessons on baptism and what water baptism means, what, what, what is the reasoning behind it, why it was commanded, why it was instituted by the Lord. And we're looking at different things about that and what it has to do with our salvation. We've looked at baptism and the preaching of the apostles originally, uh, uh, first week. And then we've looked at it in the teaching of Paul and in the teaching of Peter. And of course, we've drawn some conclusions from some of the things we've seen. Of course, go back to Acts 2, Peter's first, the, the very first gospel sermon, Peter said in Acts 2.38, what? Therefore, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And so we, we saw there that baptism is for the remission of sins. And then it's necessary for salvation. We read in Acts 22, Paul's recounting his conversion. And he talked about when Ananias came to see him, he said, what are you waiting for? Rise and be baptized. Call on the name of the Lord. Wash away your sins. And then last week, we were looking in the first letter of Peter, where he talked about Noah and his family being saved through the water, and that's an antitype, an antitype of baptism, which now saves us. And so we talked about that, and we explained what that meant as far as baptism today and baptism of water. And then it's certainly consistent. We talked about how it's very consistent with the command that the Lord made before he ascended, right? We can go to Mark 16 where he said, uh, go out to all the world preaching baptism and salvation to the world. Matthew 28, he said, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And so we've seen all these examples in Scripture where baptism is carried out, where water baptism is going on in the conversion of the saints. And this is very important to them. It's, very, uh, it's something that we see carried out immediately. It's something that we see carried out in water where they are immersed. And so it's very important. Yet there are many that still don't believe that baptism is, is something you got to do to be saved. It's not something that's essential to our salvation. And usually one of the first things they say is what? Well, what about the thief on the cross? You've probably heard that, right? You may have had a discussion with someone who did not necessarily believe that baptism was necessary, and that might have been one of their first statements to you. What about the thief on the cross? What about that? Well, before we get into that today, let's just go read about the thief on the cross. Turn over to Luke 23, Luke chapter 23, and we're going to read about that. Of course, this is uh, Jesus is on the cross. Uh, this is when he's being crucified. Uh, about to die for our sins, and there are two that are being crucified with him, thieves on each side, right? Uh, we're going to read starting in verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me 
in paradise. All right, interesting, interesting passage there, interesting few verses, right? We have the two thieves, one is mocking Jesus, the other is asking him to be saved, to save him, right? This is probably the most popular objection to the idea that baptism is necessary unto salvation. In other words, there's no record that the thief was baptized, right? But the thief was saved. So therefore, you'll hear that. You'll hear that objection. Well, how can the thief be saved if he wasn't baptized? Therefore, baptism can't be necessary for salvation. It can't be essential, right? Well, is this reasoning valid? No. Jim says no. Yeah, some of you are shaking your heads. That's right. Is this reasoning something that you can stand firmly on to say baptism is not necessary? It's not something we have to do. Might then the objector who is making this statement be failing to consider something else? Could there be something in that reasoning that just doesn't quite stand up? A significant fact that renders the salvation of the thief perhaps irrelevant to the issue. In other words, perhaps the thief being saved on the cross has really nothing to do with baptism. We're going to look at that a little bit. Uh, so we take a closer look at it. Let's first look at a couple of things that we need to emphasize. Jesus certainly had the power to save the thief. Did he not? He's God. He can save the thief. While on earth, in fact, Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. Absolutely. That pretty much goes without saying, right? I mean, it's something you wouldn't even think about. But we have record of him doing that. He exercised his authority on several occasions. Look over at Luke chapter 5, and we're going to read a couple examples of him doing this. Luke chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 18. Now these passages are a little long, so I'm going to read through them, and I, I want you to pay attention because this makes a difference. This is really different in, in the points I'm going to try to make here. Beginning in verse 18, he says, So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now it happened on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by, who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then, behold, men brought on a bed, of, men, men brought on a, bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tilling into the midst before Jesus. These guys were determined. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now notice this passage. It's very interesting. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he could, he could read their minds. He answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise up and walk? In other words, he's saying, if I can do miracles, I can forgive sins, right? Which is easier? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen some strange things today. So here's Jesus forgiving sins. Well, if he can do the miracles, if he can do the wonders and signs, surely he can forgive sins, right? He's God. He has that power to heal. He has that power, that authority to forgive sins. Turn over to chapter 7. Let's look at another example. <clears throat> Beginning of verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And when he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat, and, and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet, and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him. For she's a sinner. And here we have this Pharisee saying, This woman's a sinner. How dare he let her come and wash his feet and kiss his feet? What is up with that? Reading on, Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he, fr he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Well, Simon answered and said, I, I, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, these, these are two powerful examples of forgiveness. For our text today, we're talking about the fact that he could forgive sin. He could do it however he wanted to do it. Now you have others, you could have a whole other study on what this meant to the woman and what this meant to the paralytic, of course. How their faith saved them, how, how their love for Christ. I mean, we don't wash feet today, right? But that was a sign of humility. That woman humbled herself using her tears to wash Jesus' feet. Completely laying herself out, needing that forgiveness that she believed he could give. Interesting, isn't it? 
So Jesus clearly could do this. He could clearly forgive sins. In fact, he could offer salvation to a thief on the cross. The thief said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did he say? Surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So no one can really doubt that Jesus promised him salvation, can they? I mean, it's pretty clear. But the question still remains, is this salvation of the thief relevant to what we're talking about? Relevant to the issue of the essentiality of baptism? Well, let's look at that a little further. This baptism that we talk about, when was it commanded? Was it commanded before Jesus died? Good question. Turn over to Matthew 28. And let's just look at something there. We've read this before, but we're going to look at something else there too. Matthew 28. <clears throat> and I'm going to begin in verse 16. He says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountains which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some actually doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, this is a great commission. This is where he commands them to baptize. When did this occur? He's about to ascend, right? He's already died and been raised again, and he's been walking on the earth with his disciples, appearing to them on several occasions. Here he is appearing to them, and he's giving them the command to baptize. Therefore, was the thief still alive then? No. The thief died on the cross when Jesus died on the cross. Now, this commandment was given, as I said, right before he ascended. But what was this baptism that he commanded? Let's turn back over to Romans 6. We've gone through this. If anything else you get out of this class, remember Romans 6. All right? I want you to do that. Romans 6, beginning in verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of you, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. Just as Christ was and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So, we are baptized into his death. That's what we do when we are immersed into that watery grave. And then we're raised to new life. I, I can't emphasize this enough. I know I talk about this every week. But that explains it right there. You see, the thief... Couldn't have been baptized into his death because he hadn't died yet. Interesting point, right? Could the thief have been baptized into Jesus' death even when he was alive? You see, the thief was never subject to this baptism. It was commanded after he died, just like Moses, just like Noah, just like Elijah, just like all the characters of the Old Testament that we can read about. Were any of those folks saved? 
well, we can't be in heaven, but you remember the transfiguration? He's up on the mountain. Who appeared there with him? Moses and Elijah. Of course, that was a representation of Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, pointing to Jesus. But if Moses and Elijah are there, you've got to figure they were saved, right? They're in heaven with God. So this is the same situation. The thief is under the old law. Jesus had not died yet. They all lived before the death of Jesus, and like the thief, they were never commanded to be baptized, at least not in the baptism that we understand, that we've been commanded with. Sure, there was John's baptism, and let's look at that for a second, because somebody might say, well, what about John's baptism? They could have been baptized that way. Well, let's look at that. Mark chapter 1. And we'll let you get over there, and we're going to start in verse 1. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. What was John's baptism about? Well, we see where they were coming out to, do, to, be, to be baptized by him, all those in Judea and Jerusalem. Turn over to Acts not chapter 19. Let's read on. Acts chapter 19, and beginning in verse 1. And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him, who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Now, some might say, well, the thief was probably, you might say the thief was baptized by John, maybe. Who knows? We don't know that, but maybe he was. Read on. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Interesting. You see, the baptism of John was not the same baptism that was commanded before Jesus ascended. They were not baptized into his death. So, makes an interesting point. And you've got to consider that that baptism was something that was pointing forward, right? A lot like a lot of things that you read about in the Old Testament. In fact, let's just look at a couple examples of that. Kind of like that. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. And let's go to chapter 9. We'll read a few verses from there. And I'm trying to go slow, so I want you to follow along. So if I get too fast, just tell me. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. <clears throat> and remember, if you haven't studied Hebrews, I would encourage you greatly to go into a study of Hebrews. Hebrews helps you understand so many things about the old law and how that pointed to Jesus. Beginning in verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come 
with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and cows, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We have an example of sacrifice that the Levites would carry out for the Israelites in the old law. Bulls and goats were sacrificed. The blood was shed. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies. He had to have the incense to make it murky in there. He had to have the blood that he sprinkled on the mercy seat or else he might die because he was going into the presence of God. But what you read is that didn't really forgive the sins. Turn over to chapter 10 there. Beginning in verse 1, For the law having a shadow, notice that, a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Can't be done. For then, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Wow. Verse 5, Therefore when we came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. That's from Psalm 40, Prophecy of Jesus. Verse 8, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And they notice the last three, once for all. All right. Why am I showing them this? I want you to see everything that was going on in the old law under the Levitical practices of the sacrifices were being done as a foreshadowing of the New Testament, of the Christ to come, of his sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice that would be made. The sacrifice on bulls and goats didn't do it. They were commanded to do these things under the law, and they did, but it didn't forgive the sin. So, point I'm making is, in reality, one might use the thief on the cross to say, John's baptism was not necessary, but the argument can't be made regarding the baptism which Christ later commanded, right? He commanded it. Just like they were commanded under the old law to sacrifice bulls and goats. The thief on the cross died before Jesus' commandment. Since we live after Jesus commanded baptism, how can we use the example of the thief to say baptism is not necessary? There are two covenants 
that God has made. Right? Two covenants. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Let's see what he says there. See what Moses wrote. Beginning of verse 1, Deuteronomy 5. And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. Those who are here today, all of us who are alive, the Lord walked, talked with you face to face on the mountains from the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain. There was a covenant made with the Israelites, God's people. All right? That was done. We read about it in Deuteronomy 5. But those people, as far as we know, were never commanded to be baptized. We don't have that in Scripture. Sure, there were baptisms that occurred, John's baptism and others, but that was not the baptism that we are commanded in the Great Commission. Well, why is that different? When, when did that come? What, what's different about it? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And let's read something there. Beginning verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. You see, there was an enmity under the law. It could not be kept in the flesh. Men, fleshly men and women, could not keep the law. There was an enmity there, an adversary. When he went to the cross, he put that away. Interesting, isn't it? Colossians 2, turn over there. Colossians 2, we've read this recently, but let's read it again. <laughs> Beginning in verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. There's that law thing again, that enmity. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So you see, when he went to the cross, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant with Israel was nailed to the cross with him. That law of enmity that could not be kept was done away with. Jesus provided that. Turn over to Hebrews again. I should have told you to stay in there. We've got a couple more verses we're going to read from there. First, let's look at Hebrews chapter 8. Beginning in verse 1. 
Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who was seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. And then verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Interesting. The old, the old law had fault. Men could not keep it. We're all sinners. The only one who ever kept the law perfectly was Jesus in the flesh. All right? When he went to the cross, he nailed that old law to the cross. Now we are under a new covenant. Look over to Hebrews 9 there. Stay there in that chapter. I mean, in that book. And let's... We read the first, we read 11 through 15. Let's continue with verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Any of you have a will? It's not in force yet. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken, every precept to all the people according to the law he took the blood of cows and goats with water scarlet wool and hyssop and crinkled both the book itself and all the people saying this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you then likewise he sprinkled the blood he sprinkled the blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry and according to the law almost all things are almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood there is no remission blood has to be shed of the testator Therefore, it is necessary that the copies, notice he keeps talking about the copies and the shadows, of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. You see, Jesus is now the high priest, He's in heaven with God. He's there now, making the offering for us. The mediator. Not just once a year like the high priest did in the Holy of Holies. He then would have to, had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, we will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Wow. So he was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God. Yes, sir.
good point. So what you're saying is Enoch and Elijah did not die in the flesh. They were taken straight into heaven. That's true. And so God can do what he wants. That is very true. That's absolutely true. And so, yeah, you know what you're saying is people don't accept handle exceptions very well and true. Saying the thief on the cross was saved without baptism is an exception. That, you would say that's kind of an exception, yeah. Except for it was under the old law, and that's what we're trying to show with the baptism and what that means now. Absolutely. Good point. Good point. Turn over to Matthew 26 real quick. We've read this already a couple of times, but I want you to see this too. When we're talking about the blood and the sacrifice, the death of the testator that had to occur before the covenant came into practice. Matthew 26 and verse uh, 28. I actually start at verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. Oh, okay. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Here we have it. The blood that was shed for the new covenant. By the way, we remember that every week, don't we? When we take communion. That's why we do it. That's why it was instituted by the Lord. To remember what he did for us. So, under this new covenant, not under the old, we have a command, right? To be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Didn't occur before he died. The thief died before this command was given. And this was preached by Jesus, commanded by Jesus, delegated to his apostles who preached it as well. Right? Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 22. The apostles preached baptism. So, if that's true, how can we appeal to the example of one who lived under the old covenant to say, well, baptism is not necessary? Can we appeal to the example of David? How about Isaiah? I mean, there's no doubt these men were saved in my mind. David had the heart, you know, heart like God. But they were not commanded to be baptized into Jesus' death. So what are we going to do? Are we going to try to make an exception out of the thief? Or are we going to heed what the apostles and Jesus taught in his scripture? Yes, the thief was saved. Just like he forgave sins, the paralytic of the woman, sinful woman. And we should be thankful for that. And we should praise God for that, for his grace in doing that. But the thief's example is not relevant to the issue of baptism. Not at all. I tried to explain that today. He died before Christ was even raised. Or, or, he died before Christ ever issued the command to be baptized in his death. He lived under the old covenant which did not require a baptism into Christ. Okay? Makes sense? The thief on the cross would be relevant if you lived before the command to be baptized into his death. Or if you lived under the old covenant. Yeah. Or if you were in the presence of Christ and he said, Surely I say to you, you will be in me in paradise this very day. Sure, that would make it relevant. 
but it's not relevant to the command that was given later after he had been raised. You live after the command to be baptized was given. None of you were born before that, right? Jim Freeman was close, I know, but... You were born after that happened. You live under the new covenant when baptism is a, carries out a crucial job. You've been commanded through Christ and through his apostles to do that. So why, why would you take a chance on your salvation by simply saying, well, what about the thief on the cross? I think you want to look at what they said in the scripture, right? What the Lord had to say about it. Uh, years ago, I know you've heard of Max Licato, who was a preacher in the church in San Antonio for years, and he became very progressive, and at one point I read that he, had, he was preaching that baptism was not necessary. And I tried to find out why, and I found something that he said, well, he couldn't quite reason out the thief on the cross. That was his excuse. <laughs> now, I know Max Licato has written some very great books, some very inspiring books, you might say, especially for Christians. But the thief on the cross is not relevant to the issue of baptism. It's, it's pretty easy to see it, right? It occurred under the old covenant, just like Moses and David and all those that came before him, who were in Hebrews 11 mentioned in the great Hall of Fame of Faith. So, next time someone tells you that, say, well, what about David? What about Noah? They died before he died on the cross. As far as I know, they're saved too. It's not relevant to the issue today. All right, thanks for being here. Next week, we're going to look at that curious case of the household of Cornelius.